Happy Father's Day. I hope you're, uh, hope you're doing well. I hope you got some, uh, some waffles, some pancakes, or, or whatever uh, this morning. I want to say just how grateful we are for, uh, for all the great dads here at the, the Church of Blue Ridge. And, and also, I think it's important to acknowledge that um, maybe, maybe for some of you, this, uh, this particular holiday may be filled with uh, some sadness and, uh, and loss. And so uh, my, my prayer for you today is that, uh, is that you be encouraged by the gospel. Uh, that we're about to, to dive into here in just a minute. So uh, go ahead and, uh, and take your Bibles out and turn to the Gospel of John. Uh, John chapter 19 is, uh, is where we're going to be tonight. Um, let, let me say this at the outset uh, to all of, you, uh, all of you parents in the room. Um, uh, please, uh, uh, please relax and uh, take, take a load off. Uh, don't, don't feel pressured by your kids to kind of keep them... Uh, perfect little angels or, or anything like that. I promise you they are not going to bother me and uh, they're not going to bother uh, the people around you. And so uh, we as pastors recognize that um, kind of in a, in a COVID-19 world right now, we're, uh, uh, we're doing things a little bit differently. So I'm going to do my very best tonight to, um, uh, to keep my, my remarks uh, somewhat, somewhat brief. But as you probably figured out by now that you turn to John chapter 19, we're talking about the crucifixion. So, uh, so we want to we wanna give it um, its, due, uh, its due diligence, but at the same time, I want to respect your time. So, uh, so John chapter 19, we're going to be looking at verses, uh, really the last half of verse 16, all the way down through verse 30. John chapter 19, verses 16 uh, through 30. Uh, read along with me there in your Bible or on your electronic device. John writes for us, So they took Jesus... And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I've written, I've written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the Scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. 
When Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, It is finished. And He bowed His head and gave up His spirit. I think John has has, uh, presented the crucifixion scene to us in essentially five scenes. Five scenes. And so what I want to do tonight is I want to briefly walk us through those five scenes with this kind of main idea in mind. All right? Five scenes chasing after this main thought. In, In fulfillment of the Scriptures, Jesus conquers sin and brings salvation to His people by dying on the cross. In the fulfillment of Scriptures, in the fulfillment of the Scriptures, Jesus conquers sin and brings salvation to His people by dying on the cross. Let's look at these five scenes of the resurrection. Scene one. Scene one. Uh, Really, verses the last half of 16 through 18 make up scene one. And Pilate has, has handed over Jesus... To, uh, to his Roman executioners, right? These are the soldiers that, that, are, going to, that are going to kill Jesus. They're going to take him away. And it's, it's presumably at this point that Jesus receives um, the beating that, that most of you, if you've seen The Passion of the Christ, you probably saw portrayed in that movie. This was the, the worst of all beatings that he received, his second beating, uh, the most severe. And, and after this, being beaten literally almost half to death, uh, the great uh, crossbeam would have been uh, put upon his shoulders and he was uh, forced to, to carry it to the place of his execution. Now, um, God's law in Leviticus chapter 24, verse 14 requires that executions of, of people who are cursed take place outside of the camp. In this case, that is outside of the city um, of Jerusalem there. And so, so Jesus carries his cross outside of the, of the city. And, and John makes a point here in this first scene to let us know that Jesus is carrying the cross by himself. He's on his own. Now, now we know from the other gospel writers, from the synoptics, from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that a man named Simon of Cyrene, he comes along later and actually helps Jesus. But, but John has very intentionally left that point out. Because he wants us to see that this is, this is all the Son of God here. He's getting no help. He's carrying this cross. He's bearing this cross on his own. In his, in his darkest hour, it is Jesus who is in control and who is fulfilling God's plan. Now, the soldiers, they would often lead people that were being crucified on the, on the longest possible route to the location for crucifixion. This, this had a couple of purposes. One, it was to just prolong their suffering and the agony of the person being crucified. But then second, it was also to instill fear in onlookers, right? Defy Rome and this will happen to you, right? The Romans were, they were master craftsmen at pain and, and suffering. And so they were leading Jesus to uh, this place called the skull. And, and John gives us the, the Aramaic equivalent of that in his gospel. It's called Golgotha. It's a place located right outside of the city there in Jerusalem. Uh, perhaps if you might read in your Bible, it's called Calvary. That's basically the Latin equivalent of the place of the skull. There, Jesus' hands would have been nailed to the cross. And John tells us that he's not alone either. Jesus is not being crucified by himself, that there were two others there. These are, of course, if you're familiar with the, the crucifixion stories and the, and the other gospel accounts, these are uh, the two men that, that Matthew specifically, he calls them robbers. 
Now, what that means is, is really an insurrectionist. These men were probably guilty of the same crime that we saw a couple weeks ago with Barabbas. These men had, had defied Rome. They had, they had uh, led or been a part of uprisings, possibly. But the point here of John including this is for us to see once again that it's God that's in control. It's Jesus that's in control. That Jesus is fulfilling the Scriptures. He's, he's fulfilling His Father's plan. Listen to what Psalm 22, verse 16 says. Uh, the, the righteous sufferer there in that psalm sings, For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Or you might, you might know this passage from Isaiah 53 of the suffering servant. Jesus, uh, where it talks about a suffering servant being numbered among the transgressors. Most, most scholars will say that, that what's going on there in the crucifixion here in John's Gospel, John is pointing us back to Psalm 22 or perhaps maybe Isaiah 53. You see, there's this, there's this theme throughout the, the Old Testament specifically. This theme of a, of a suffering servant, of a righteous sufferer who for the sake of God's people is, um, is suffering. It's found all throughout the the Old Testament. You can see it in places in like Psalm 22, um, Psalm 69, Isaiah 53. Um, You'll see King David uh, specifically often in the Psalms will place himself in this role of a righteous sufferer. And and these stories, they they serve a purpose. They, They serve a purpose to build this theme for us, to build shelf space, if you will, in our minds for a righteous one who would come and suffer for the sake of God's people. They're they're preparing us. They're preparing us as we read the Bible for the fuller meaning. So that when we come to the story of Jesus, knowing those other stories from the Old Testament and that theme, we can say, aha, it was God's plan all along. That's that's the purpose of this. So, So this psalm that we just talked about, Psalm 22, 16, It can be written about David and be true. It was. It's about David. Probably written by him. But ultimately, we can see it and understand it in light of Jesus and who he is and what he's done in the crucifixion. Well, that brings us to scene 2. Verses 19 through 22. You see, the, the crucifixion, in addition to pain and suffering, unimaginable pain and suffering, it was, also, it was also intended and designed to inflict maximum shame and dishonor upon those who, who suffered under it. Right, the, the crucified hung often naked for the world to see the shame that would meet any person who dared to defy Rome. Right? And often there was a sign that was created that would um, detail uh, the person to be executed, their transgressions, what they did, their crime. All right? And it was displayed along the march. Again, for the whole world to see. Look at what this guy did, and look at where it got him. I dare you to defy Rome. But, but in Jesus' case, Pilate, he takes very special interest in Jesus and his sign. Um, it's unlikely that Pilate wrote it himself, but the way John describes it is that, is that Pilate at least had it written. He had Jesus' sign written. And he had it written in three languages, as we read. In Aramaic. Now, Aramaic was the language spoken by the Jews there in Palestine. He had it written in, in Latin. That was the official language of Rome, the government language. And then he also had it written in Greek, the international trade language. So for the entire world to see, for the entire world to really be able to read, 
right? Pilate had written Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This is, a, this is a great example of first century spin, right? We're, we're used to this now, right? The news takes a, uh, a set of stories depending on, you know, who you're watching, whether it's, you know, Fox News, CNN, they all do it. They, they take a story and they spin it to kind of meet their own agenda, right? That's what Pilate's doing here. He's taking something that's very true, ironically it's true, and he's spinning it to, to accomplish his own purposes. And, and the Jewish leaders, they're, they're really doing the same as well, but... But with Pilate in, in, in particular, the Jewish leaders, as we saw a couple weeks ago, they, they had really stuck it to Pilate, hadn't they? Right? They, had, they had forced him into a corner with Jesus where, Pilate, if you're not Caesar's friend, well, I guess we're going to have to tell Caesar if you're not going to crucify this man. Right? If you're Caesar's friend, Pilate, you're going to crucify Jesus. Pilate was backed into a corner. But what we learned about Pilate a couple weeks ago is that Pilate is no one's patsy. And he's not going to put up with this from the Jews. He's going to have the last laugh. So, so that's why he, he writes this sign the way that he does. Right? The Jews say they have no king. In Pilate's mind, this man is not their king. And Pilate writes this sign. Here is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. They say they have no king, but here's their king. A man beaten beyond recognition, bloodied, wearing a crown of thorns and hanging upon a cross. Here's their king. Now, of course, the chief priests, they're going to protest at this. They know what Pilate's doing. Pilate's shaming them. He's showing them that he's in control, right? But ironically, neither Pilate nor the Jewish leaders got their way in this true story. Both wanted to spin the truth, right? Both wanted to spin the truth about this, this Jesus who is king, but neither of them got their way. The, the one actually calling the shots this day, this is what John wants us to see. The one who's in perfect control is the guy who's being crucified. And his gospel just got written on a sign and proclaimed to the whole world in three languages, so almost anybody on the planet at that time could have read it. Isn't that amazing? The crucified one is in perfect control. The one dying on the cross is the king. Well, meanwhile, in scene 3, it's, it's verses 23 to 24, the, the soldiers that, that had crucified Jesus, they began helping themselves to his clothing. Now, this was a normal practice for Roman soldiers who were crucifying people. This is what they did. It's gruesome, it's barbaric, but this is what they did. And it's another example of just the incredible shame that our Savior faced. They, they split His garments so that um, the four of them, this is how we learn that, that there were actually four soldiers that participated in the crucifixion, they split, they split His clothes among the four of them. They probably got a belt, maybe, a, a, a couple of, maybe two shoes. But they came to this tunic, and this tunic couldn't be so easily divided without tearing it, Right? And so uh, th this tunic was probably like a robe or something that Jesus would have worn underneath his outer garments. And they can't tear it, it'll ruin it. So they decide there, according to John's gospel, that we're going to cast lots for it. That's what we'll do. This is a casting lots is a way of gambling using dice. And, and you're reading through this in John's gospel, and you're like wondering, like, John, why do I need to know this? Like, why does this matter? But again, the point that John wants us to see is that the Scriptures are being fulfilled, that everything is going according to the plan, and Jesus is in control. John actually quotes 
from Psalm 22 here again, verse 18. Psalm 22, 18. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And then notice what John says next there in your Bibles. He says, so the soldiers did these things. Now, unfortunately, in English, the, the way that's positioned in the Bible, it makes it look like it goes with the next verse, right? The next scene about Jesus and his mother. But it actually it goes with what we're talking about right now because John is being um, just brutally transparent and honest. God's Word said this was going to happen, and so that's what the soldiers did. Jesus is in perfect control here. Well, as I said in scene 4, Jesus turns His attention to those standing near the cross. Um, there's, there, there's some debate here 20, in verses 25 to 27 as to how many Marys there are standing here. But the most likely answer is that we have here Mary, Jesus' mother. We have her sister. We have Mary, the wife of Clopas. And we have Mary Magdalene. But we also learn that John the beloved disciple is here. Now, John the beloved disciple is, is the one who wrote this gospel. And so he's standing there, and it's, it's in these final moments of Jesus' life. Jesus is about to give up his life. He's about to willingly die that Jesus turns his concern to his mother. He wants to make sure that Mary is taken care of. Now, Jesus was Mary's oldest son. We know that from, from the New Testament. We know that Jesus had brothers, right? But it's likely at this point in the story that Jesus' brothers have yet to believe the gospel. We learned that way back in John chapter 7. You can go back and look. I think it's around verse 5. Jesus' brothers haven't embraced his message yet. And Jesus' father, most people believe at this point that Joseph has already died. Mary is widowed. And so it would have been Jesus' responsibility, according to Jewish tradition, according to God's law even, for, uh, for Jesus to take care of his mother, Right? We can read about this in Exodus 20, verse 12. God commands children to honor their parents. Right? We don't just abandon our parents when they get old and decrepit. We, we don't do that as followers of Jesus. We take care of our moms and our dads. And so Jesus honors His earthly mother and father here in this darkest of the moments of His life. He's concerned about even that. Again, John is wanting us to see the guy on the cross, the guy who's being murdered... He's the one who's in control here. After this, in the fifth scene, verses 28 through 30, John tells us that Jesus at this point knows, knowing that everything was finished and to fulfill Scripture, John tells us this, to fulfill Scripture, he said, he said I'm thirsty. Now, the, the question that we have to ask as we read through that is, okay, what does Jesus know? What, what does he know is finished? Well, what I think is that he knows that up until this moment, this moment when he's hanging on the cross and he's uttering that word, those words, it is finished, that he knows that he has already accomplished everything his Father has sent him to do. From the time that, that he became the... From the time that the Son of God was incarnated and Jesus walked the earth, Jesus knows that He has accomplished everything that His Father sent Him to do. The Father's plan of redemption, it's almost complete. He's checked all the boxes. After um, hanging on the cross for hours, right? Baking in the sun, most likely. 
There's no doubt that he was thirsty. There's no doubt that, that he wanted something to drink. But, but it's important that we not miss the point of John including that little detail. The, the reason that Jesus says from the cross and the reason that John includes it, the reason that he says, I'm thirsty, was to fulfill Scripture. It had far less to do with um, moistening his mouth and far more to do with keeping his Father's plan down to the tiniest, tiniest little detail. Now, this could be, we could see this connected to Psalm 22 again. There's a passage in Psalm 22 that, that some scholars say point to this reality that, that the one dying on the cross would say that, um, that he was thirsty. Others think it's more closely connected to Psalm 69. Honestly, both work. Both of those passages will work. And either way, John's point remains. By calling out for a drink on the cross, Jesus is carrying out the Father's plan of redemption. Down to the letter. Down to the letter. So the soldiers, they, they place a sponge soaked in sour wine, which if you're reading through John's Gospel and you're, you're reading through it there, and it's, it's almost as if the jar just kind of happened to be there, right? Well, it didn't happen to be there. It was there because God had ordained all of this. And so they, they take that sponge soaked in sour wine and they lift it to him on a hyssop branch. If you're, if you're, if you're reading closely, you'll remember that the hyssop branch was the same branch that God called his people in the Exodus to use to sprinkle the blood of the Passover lamb on the doorposts, right? Again, pointing to Jesus as the Passover lamb. And it's, it's after having his mouth moistened that Jesus says, it is finished. Now, we need to be clear here what Jesus means by this. Jesus does not mean, when he says it is finished, that um, his life is over. That his physical life is over. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. What is finished is what I've been saying. The, the great plan of redemption as promised by God to His people and as carried out by Jesus, the Son of God. Right? Complete and secure forever. It is finished is not an admission of defeat. It's not an admission of, of death, but a proclamation of victory. I, I've often read it that way. I've often read it the opposite of victory. I've often read it as, a, as an admission, almost as an admission of defeat. That like, okay, things are over. Jesus can now finally die. But that's not what it is. This is a statement of victory. Like, I've accomplished it. I've finished my task. Jesus is declaring that from that moment and for all of time after it, the salvation of God's people was complete. It's finished. It's done. It's finished, and it will always be finished. So at this point, now Jesus can allow himself to die. Not in defeat. You've heard it said before. We, we might even say it as, as Christians when we're talking about this particular passage in a Bible study. They didn't kill Jesus, that he allowed himself to be free. Right? You've heard that said before. That's absolutely true. Death was just a means of Jesus returning to the Father. Right? He is, he is dying in fulfillment of the Scriptures to atone for our sins and ultimately to return to His Father in heaven to the glory that awaited Him. It's finished. So, that's the crucifixion. And that's, that's how fast John rolls through it. Bam, bam, bam. He doesn't spend a lot of time on it. So, so what are we to make of it? How, 
how are we to understand um, its meaning for us, right? Well, the first thing that I think we should talk about is this. The difference between power and authority. The difference between power and authority. Um, it, it was a pastor that, that I like to listen to and follow. His name is Kevin DeYoung. He, he pointed me to this, this great line by a guy named G.K. Chesterton. Listen to what G.K. Chesterton said. And I should tell you what Chesterton's doing, or this line's not going to make sense. He's sitting in a restaurant with a friend of his, and he makes this claim. He says, if a rhinoceros were to enter this restaurant now, there's no denying that he would have great power here. But I should be the first to arise and assure him that he had no authority whatsoever. That's an odd quote, isn't it? If a rhinoceros were to enter a restaurant... He'd have lots of power, but I'd be the first to tell him that he has no authority here. Chesterton is pointing to that reality that there is a difference between power and authority. That a rhinoceros can, can be in a restaurant and he could ransack the place and destroy it. He has the power to do that, but ultimately he's just, he's just a beast. He's just an animal. He doesn't have, he doesn't have any authority, right? There's a difference between power and authority. The, the Jews, they had the power. They had the ability to arrest Jesus, to charge him with blasphemy, and to go beg Pilate to kill him because they couldn't do it themselves under Roman law. They had the power, the ability to do that, and that's what they did. Pilate and the Roman soldiers, they had the power, they had the ability to, to beat, torture, and crucify Jesus. And that's what they did. But neither of them had any real authority to do so. Do you see the difference? They had the power. They could physically make it happen. But ultimately, the authority to do that didn't rest in them. Because whose scriptures are being fulfilled in all of this? God's. God is the one with the authority to crucify the Son. He's the one in charge here. Jesus, as I've said over and over, because it's John's point, Jesus, the one hanging on the tree, He's in charge. The true authority that day rested in the one who was seemingly powerless. Our beaten, bloodied Savior who was hanging on the tree. It was, it was the authority that He shared with His Father and in the Godhead that ultimately put, one, put Him there. No one else did it. Jesus is in charge. That's why, that's why John has taken such great pains to show us how even in His crucifixion, down to these little tiny details about Him being thirsty, that these were the fulfillment of God's plans. Right? He may not... He certainly did not look that day, Jesus, as powerful as a rhinoceros in a restaurant. But Jesus is the one who made the rhinoceros, who made the Roman soldiers, who made the Jewish religious leaders, who made the wood of the cross that He was hanging on. There's a difference between power and authority, and all the, the authority rested that day in Jesus. Friends, the reason this matters to us and I think you're probably picking up on it now, right? Coronavirus and, and a country reeling with its refusal to, to deal with, um, with racial injustices that it has just ignored for far too long, those things seem to have a lot of power right now, right? They get a lot of press. They're on our social media feeds. They're all over the place. 
But let's not forget who has true authority. Who's running this show that is the world, that is our country right now? Who's ultimately in charge? Who has real authority? We kind of feel, I kind of feel, I can't speak for you, I kind of feel like I'm sitting in a restaurant right now and a rhinoceros is ransacking the place. All right? That's how I feel. Friends, there's a difference between power and authority, and true authority still rests upon the one who hung on the tree. He's still calling the shots. He was calling the shots while they were killing him. He's calling the shots now. He was following the Father's plan then, and the Father's plan is being followed right now. So, so my counsel to you, the best thing that you can probably do, and, I, and I'm going to do my best to do that this week and moving forward, the best thing I think we can do right now is turn off our televisions, probably take a break from social media, pray, read our Bibles, and trust the one who's in control. The second, the second, thing, the second way that I think this matters to us is, is this. We, we need to talk about the strangeness of, of Jesus' gospel. The strangeness of Jesus' gospel. This is, this is a big picture view of John's gospel that I think the cross is pointing us to. We can go all the way back to John chapter 13 where Jesus, the master teacher, he stoops to clean his disciples' dirty feet. No rabbi in the first century would have ever done that. And that's exactly what Jesus did. John is pointing us with that image of, of Jesus wiping his disciples' feet. He's pointing us to the strangeness of Jesus' gospel. Violence and brute force were not the means by which Jesus exercised authority. We've seen it over and over again. Right? He, he goes, at his arrest, he goes with the soldiers without a fight. He tells Peter, he says, Peter, put your sword up. After Peter cuts the guy's ear off, right? Put your sword up. And of course, we learn from the synoptics that, that Jesus actually like puts the, the ear back on in a, an amazing healing miracle, right? He tells Pilate, Pilate, my kingdom's not of this world, right? Friends, John wants us to see the cross as the culminating image of this idea of the strangeness of Jesus' gospel. The, the epitome of the unexpected nature of his kingdom. Think about this with me for just a moment. At the cross... God is conquering the power of sin by being conquered. You ever thought about that before? He's winning by losing. Who does that? Right? He's winning by losing. Everyone else in the, in the story that we just read, the story we just talked about, everyone else is throwing around their weight. They're using force, violence, politics, conspiracy. They're doing all of these things to get their way. And Jesus is accomplishing his mission by dying, by hanging on a cross. He's accomplishing his mission through sacrificial love, self-sacrificing love. This is a strange gospel. A strange gospel. And as his church, Jesus has called us to step into the strangeness of it. Friends, as, as the church at Blue Ridge, we must remember that the mission Jesus has left us to accomplish will not be completed through conventional means. We're not going to force our way into seeing the nations hear and believe the gospel. That's not how this works. Right? And it certainly won't come about through violence. That almost goes without saying. Right? 
There's, there's nothing conventional about a king who dies for his people. Instead, um, stepping into Jesus' mission, as he's called us to do, is going to require some unconventional means. Things like sacrifice, humility, faith, prayer. And I think above all, as we see demonstrated in the cross, this self-sacrificing love. I would encourage you this week to, to think about those things and how, how you are demonstrating those unconventional means of, of accomplishing the gospel mission that Jesus has left us with. If we want the world to hear the truth about our dying Savior, we must listen to what Jesus is saying to us from the cross. It's the same thing he was saying back in John 13. Love one another as I've loved you. Self-sacrificing love. But then last, and most importantly, last and absolutely most importantly, John wants us to see the crucifixion as the source of our salvation. The source of our salvation. Jesus is pictured in this scene as the scapegoat. He's the, the cursed one upon which the sins of God's people are cast upon and then He is driven out bearing them. He's also the, the Passover lamb. He's the sacrifice that atones for the sins of all God's people. And as I was thinking about, this, thinking about that this week and preparing, it dawned on me that almost every sermon I've ever heard on the crucifixion seems to always focus on the gruesome details of it, Right? Think like Passion of the Christ or, or some other like really vivid, gory, detailed sermon that you've heard on the crucifixion. And, and please don't hear me. I, I'm not saying that those are necessarily wrong, but I want to caution us on that with this idea that the cross is about our salvation. He, he, here's, what I, here's what I mean. Let me see if I can illustrate what I mean. What if I were to bring in here tonight on this stage and put on it the actual wooden beams that Jesus was crucified. If there was some way that I, those things were preserved and I could find them and I could put them up here. The actual wooden beams, the actual nails that they drove through his hands and his feet, and even the crown of thorns. What if I could put them right here? And what if I described in vivid, gruesome detail the events of the crucifixion, and I even told you that a man named Jesus was once crucified, but told you nothing of who he was, why he was there, and what he accomplished by being there. What have I accomplished? Maybe you just ruined your dinner? That's about it. The point of the crucifixion, and John absolutely wants us to see this. That's why he was so brief. The point of the crucifixion is not the mechanics of crucifixion or the gore of the cross. The point is the theology of the cross. The theology that stands behind it to which it points and the theology of the cross is this, that the man who hung on the tree, he was the sinless son of God. The sinless son of God. The suffering that he endured, all of that pain, all of that shame, all of that suffering, none of it compared. None of it compared to his father's righteous wrath that was being poured out upon him in those moments as he hung. And do you know who that wrath was originally directed towards? You and me. The sinless son of God is hanging on the tree in my place in your place. 
That's what John wants us to see. He's hanging there in your place. And he's asking, John is asking, do you believe? That's the whole point of his gospel. I've written these things, John says, so that you might believe and that by believing you might have life. Do you believe that Jesus died in your place? That's the theology of the cross. That's why John has written, friends, let us not miss the cross for the crucifixion. Let us rehearse it to ourselves, the theology of it to ourselves. It's the the heart. It is the gospel message. We often sing it around here. It it sounds, well, just like this. I'm not going to sing it, I promise. Behold the man upon a cross. My sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Friends, if you're here tonight and you have never realized that Jesus died in your place, it can be finished for you tonight. You can repent of your sins and trust in the atoning work of Christ. And I pray that that's exactly what you would do. Let's pray. King Jesus, we stand in awe of what you did for us. All your suffering, all your shame, all your pain, it belonged to us. It was ours. And you absorbed it all. You drank the cup of God's wrath down to the bottom. Father, I I ask that you would not let a second of our lives go by without that truth being near to our hearts and to our minds. That we would be gospel people. People not, not... caught up in the detail, the gory details of the cross, but in the beautiful theology of it, that in fulfillment of the Scriptures, Jesus died in our place. I pray for our friends and our neighbors that they would see this in us, that they would hear us speak this truth to them, and that they would believe. They would believe in what Jesus has done, that they might have life. Help us in these things for the glory of your name. Amen.